continuing in our series on the Lord's Prayer. That prayer, by the way, was great. That time of confession, I think, fits so well with the topic that we're on today. So I'm going to ask that you find Matthew 6, 12 as we go along. And we've been asking the question, what happens when you pray the Lord's Prayer? Making uh, three basic contentions about what happens. The first is that uh, you, can, you pray like Jesus. The second is that you can discover the heart of God. And third, you can be transformed. That transformation piece is contingent upon actually yielding to God through Jesus Christ. You can do the first two to some degree without doing that, but what's the point? Without that third piece. The beauty of the Lord's Prayer is that it's pretty universal. You can go into a lot of contexts with believers of different backgrounds, and you can pretty well be assured that the Lord's Prayer is going to be a pretty useful thing uh, to pray together. Uh, when I was a hospital chaplain, it was an easy go-to when you'd go into a patient's room. I was a, a, at a hospital that was about 80% Roman Catholic, so this was an easy thing for me, the, the evangelical Protestant, to connect with uh, Roman Catholic uh, patients and families. Uh, but what, what you also discover is that just as it's universal, there are a few differences that come into play along the way that'll catch you as you recite it together. Um, and one of those comes up today in our passage the two places that you run into maybe a difference uh, is when we get to this forgive us our, is it debts, is it trespasses, or is it sins with this crowd that I'm pray praying with? And you'll find out real quick who's, who goes into the long word trespasses and who uses what in the short words, because you have to wait for a moment if you use debts, and somebody else says trespasses. Okay, fine. And then the other one that caught me uh, quite often was, do you stop at and uh, the last line about evil, or the evil one, depending on, that's another one, but that's next week. Uh, usually evil. Hard stop. Or for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, or forever and ever. Amen. So you got a couple places where it's a universal prayer, and yet at the same time there are these minor differences and variations that come into play. We're focusing our efforts on the debts, uh, sins, or uh, trans, not transgressions, trespasses this morning transgressions comes later in that passage. Uh, but let me just make a quick comment, not about the actual meaning of for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, but since we're talking about kind of some variations, let me just make a comment on that, because if you look at Matthew and if you look at Luke, the two places where we have it listed in our, our English Bibles, you'll see that it does have a hard stop. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. If you open up to your text, um, I have real simple footnotes in mind. But almost all of us, I think, in the room have them right at the bottom. Mine's on this page. Uh, it'll give me two footnotes. So you read the text, verse 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Footnote B, or from evil. And then it says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. But that's not in the text. But we say it all the time. So let me just make a comment. That's what that's called is a textual variant. There's a whole subcategory of biblical scholars that study this, and it's pretty fascinating stuff, actually. If you like little charts like they did in school where you check off, you know, uh, Bob went to the store, and this person, you have a chart, and you have to figure out the details of the story. That's the kind of thing you're doing here, only in a much more advanced way. But what we can discover is that this was an early liturgy tacked on to Christian worship, probably right around 100 AD, give or take, uh, 10 or 20 years on either side. It's been with the church very early. It's not the inspired word of God. 
but I would suggest there's nothing wrong in praying it with the Lord's Prayer. The church has been testing it out for about 2,000 years. So I think we're on solid ground to use it. But we recognize it's not actually part of Scripture. It's not what Jesus said. So we just make that distinction. Um, much like we sing worship songs that talk about what Scripture is about, we don't have a problem with that, unless it's theologically inaccurate, then we do. Um, we, use, uh, we say, uh, after, you, after a Scripture reading, the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, in some churches you'll hear that. Same kind of idea. There's nothing anti-scriptural about it. It's just not the word of God. It's just something that, that amplifies what we're saying about the word. So don't let it scandalize you when you run into things like that. This, this is the only time I usually mention this kind of thing, but it's because it's a pretty famous one that we say. I think it's perfectly usable in worship. Recognize it's not the word of God. Let's read together Matthew 6, verse 12, as we just confessed, and it should come up on the screen. It says, and let's read it together, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Okay, now we've read it, so we better mean it, right? Let's, uh, let's talk about what this means. What is the word that we should use? Debts, sins, trespasses. That's really kind of the, the way we're going with things this morning. If you were to turn over to Luke 11, 2 through 4, which I don't believe will come up on the screen, this is the other place where we have the Lord's Prayer stated by Jesus, and I'll read it to you, and you can hear that line. It says, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. It's a, a even more compressed version of an already compressed prayer, but you heard the difference there, didn't you? There it says sins. Now the word behind there in Greek is a different word than the one in Matthew on the first instance, but on the second instance it's the same word for debt or debtor in that case. So it leads us to just wonder if there's something more packed into that word that we need to unpack this morning. And I think the right question to ask, if we're considering the debts and the debtors, is what is wrong that needs to be made right in this case? What's being actually canceled out as far as debt is concerned? And, and to understand that, we're getting into the theological territory of what's called the atonement. That is the question of when Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected, what's that actually accomplishing? Um, an easy way to think of atonement is at one minute, two things that are separated but shouldn't be are put together again. And I'm not going to get deep into the, the weeds on this one. We're going to go high level today, but I want us to at least understand conceptually what we're talking about when it comes to this debt debtor line. This whole idea of atonement is how God deals with the problem of sin. And you can look through the Old Testament and you can see the sacrificial system that's there is, is a primary way we understand what God is doing and how grave sin is of an offense to God and God's character. All throughout the Old Testament, uh, we discover what God's holiness looks like and we discover what it's like then to follow the law, which actually tells us how we fail just as much as it tells us who God is uh, and who, how we're supposed to operate in order to walk with God and be in communion with God, a holy God, we discover through the law throughout the Old Testament that we just can't accomplish that. Because we can't accomplish being holy, because 
that breaks the relationship between us and God, that, that God who's holy, sin is a thing that's the opposite of God's character, unholy. It's, we can't be in communion with a holy God if we're being unholy. It just doesn't work. Uh, much like, I, I think of it this way, um, one of our daughters can't be around cigarette smoke. Well, if somebody's been smoking, they can't come into contact with her, otherwise it causes problems. Holy, unholy, just in that instance, all right? T take it for what it's worth. That kind of helps us understand what's going on. You can't be in communion together because one is the opposite of the other. And we discover in the Old Testament that sin is such a grave offense that it's a capital offense. Not only does it separate us from God now, but, but without taking care of the problem, the penalty is actually death, ultimately. We're, we're cut off from God now, but then in relationship, but then we're fully cut off if nothing is done about the problem completely from God. That's the, the punishment. And you can see very clearly then in the Old Testament sacrificial system that God made a way through blood atonement, through something of great value, but not of equal value to human life, through an animal life, blood is the life of the animal, but then that blood is taken, and it's also something that's costly to a person, representing that this is actually a costly offense that's happened between you and God. And that will, at least in the Old Testament system, temporarily make things right. The life of the animal is taken, and it's an expensive proposition for a person to have to give up that animal that would have otherwise provided for them. That's how much of an offense sin is. That's atonement. There's an offering of atonement being made to take the, the two things that are out of relationship and put them back together. You can see throughout the New Testament that there are a lot of different ways that atonement is conceived of in images because it's a really complex break in the relationship. It's a complex thing that Jesus has taken care of on the cross. So you see uh, it's imaged in liberation, freedom. It's, it's imaged in cleansing or holiness in the New Testament. You have verses that, that image it or, or show a, a picture of it as transformation, uh, new creation, born again, that sort of language that's, that's putting together or becoming something new so that we can walk with God. Uh, economic examples, healing examples, legal examples, and then probably what's most present for us is relational examples within the New Testament that were made right with God in that relationship. One of the, the principal theories of the atonement that's really dominated sort of our tradition of, um, of the church, our little wing of the family tree, or branch of the family tree, is what's called the satisfaction theory. Again, we won't get deep in the weeds. But the idea here is a, a slight modernization of the Old Testament sacrificial system that, and it's right in many ways, that our sin is an insult to God, and, and that insult is, it must an amendment must be made for that sin. A payment must be made, essentially. That humans, if we're the ones that broke it, are the only ones that conceivably should fix it, but the payment's too great for us to pay, so God steps in and fixes the problem. That he satisfies the debt that's been uh, accrued by us, much like we read in Matthew 18. And there's, this is it's got good things going for it. All the atonement theories are, have great things going. All of them fall short in many ways. That's why the New Testament has a lot of different ways to image it. One of the problems, though, that we have to recognize and why it's present for us looking at things this morning with debts and sins and, and trespasses is that it makes the proposition purely a transactional one still. 
So, so something is owed to God, debt-wise, and we need to take care of that somehow. Jesus satisfies that debt, and then you can go on and mind your own business if we're not careful. That's kind of one of the directions that the theory can fall flat and go. And we have to be careful that we're not misguided then by the language of the Lord's Prayer by thinking that same sort of thing, that the, the relationship, it's not transactional. Or is it? Or is it relational? Which one is it? Is it simply one or the other, or is there something deeper going on? To uh, quote Paul Peter Waldenstrom, our covenant forefather, and for those of you in the room who heard me say atonement and immediately thought that, because that's part of our covenant tradition, you were right to think that, and you can check this off on your covenant bingo card right now. Waldenstrom says, God's love is never presented in the scriptures as the result of the son's sacrifice, but as the cause and basis of it. It does not say because God gave his son, he could once again love the world. No, because God loved the world. For this reason, he gave his son. And I think it points us back to the idea that this is a relational issue that's being taken care of with the debts and the debtors, or the sins, and those who have sinned against us. Now, for those of you that did your homework last week, uh, I won't have you raise your hand, but remember we took a long time, for those of you that were here last week, to go through a process for looking at uh, something like a simple verse like this and comparing translations, and I know a few of you were eating it up, and uh, some of you went home, and you looked, I said, try it this week with the Lord's, this, this verse 12. And you probably would have been fairly frustrated because there's almost no difference between all the translations in Matthew 6, 12. You can try it again next week. You might have a little more fun with it, with especially evil and the evil one, that kind of thing. But what's interesting is behind this word debt that we see in the Matthew text, there's a bigger idea that sits behind that. Jesus uh, spoke Aramaic. He was in a culture that um, was a sort of Hebrew-thinking culture, Old Testament, was the operative way they're thinking about it, the sacrificial system and the way God had set things up. Within that culture, there were, was an expression within the Aramaic language that, that this term would be pointing to, this debt's debtor language, that the debt that's being taken care of was used only in relation to human sin. So it's debt, but it's in relationship to the, the transactional debt between, in a relationship between me and God or between me and another person, where we have stepped over the line in some way. It's a very specific way of understanding the problem of sin and the problem that sin uh, has for humans and for God both. I think Jesus helps us out even if we go just a little further down in the text. Verses 14 and 15 of Matthew 6. It says, For if you forgive other people, when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. All of a sudden, the debt debtor language gets a little more pronounced. Yeah, it is pointing at the sins that happen between us and God and us and other humans. That matters greatly here. I think Jesus' words clarify that this is a relational issue. 
And I think if the Lord's uh, prayer represents God's heart, then I think what you see in Matthew is an expansion of this by the time you get to Matthew 18. You see a pretty healthy way that this is fleshed out in parable form by Jesus. We heard that text this morning from Matthew 18, starting at verse 25, where you have this unmerciful servant, right, who his, this massive debt is paid off for him. I mean, this is, the, this is like corporate debt, like something that a corporation or a small country would have, not a person would have. Something he never, he, even though he says, I'll pay it off, there's no way he's ever going to pay it off. And then he's not even willing to write off this small debt to somebody else. And if you think about it just a little bit further, if he was in this deep in debt, was it actually his money that he lent to the other person? Okay, so I mean, the, the plot thickens a little bit more even when you think about it that way. That debt is so great. The, the, the Lord, basically, in this case, gives him mercy and grace, which is what God does to us through Jesus Christ to make the relationship right between us and God. And so let me define uh, good definitions of mercy and grace for us. Mercy uh, is not giving a person what they deserve. You see that in the parable. He deserved to go to the debtor's prison and have all the stuff happen awful as it was. That's the way they took care of it. They're, legally, that's what should have happened. And instead, his boss says, no way. Let's just forgive this. Grace, then, is giving a person what they do not deserve. And we can see that Jesus does that, or God does that through Jesus Christ. We deserve death because of our relational brokenness, with God, and we have uh, a brokenness even now in relationship with God, but instead of that, God not only gives us life, but abundant life as the opportunity. Not only the chance to just exist in this existence, but to be in glory with God. We get the fullness of that offered to us. The, the relational debt, the sin is forgiven, and we're given the relationship. It's not just a transaction that's occurred. It says, okay, now you can go on and live and let live. No. No, now you can walk with me and thrive and not just survive in my creation. That grace is dispensed to us. The catch that we discover in the text, in the shorthand and then the slightly longer version right after the Lord's Prayer, the catch is that our ability to receive those two things, mercy and grace, are dependent on our, our ability to be embodied by those things. Once they're given to us, they have to become a part of us. And for those of you, by the way, that are looking for an identity this morning, these two things, mercy and grace. God's giving it out by the handful. We need to take it, receive it, and walk with God and be dispensers of that because of mercy and grace. Maybe to put it more pronounced, the words of Eugene Peterson in the message, Matthew 6, 14 and 15, he says, In prayer, there is a connection between what God does and what you do. You can't get forgiveness from God, for instance, without also forgiving others. If you refuse to do your part, you cut yourself off from God's part. It has to bury itself deep in us and become who we are because we recognize what God has done for us to fix that relational brokenness that we caused by our sin. And so the key of the passage to understanding, I think, what the word should be in a, 
you know, I think any one of them work. I would lean towards sins because I think that interprets it the best for us to understand in our day and age. But the key to understanding this is that it's not just about what's broken, it's about the fix, it's about forgiveness. That's really what's in, in mind here when Jesus says that forgiveness is the mark of who we are. We are to be a forgiving people because God is a forgiving God. And when we think about that, I think it clarifies what it is we're praying for, that relational wholeness that we have in mind there, that Jesus had in mind. And when it comes to forgiveness, there are some difficult things about forgiveness. And we can get stuck sometimes because it's a very complex thing. We're only going to say a couple things about it. But it's difficult because with forgiveness, we can sometimes get bogged down by what we can't control in that relational equation, especially with other people. But we have to focus on what we can control in order for, to, for forgiveness to actually have the most impact and effect. So, for instance, um, I can't necessarily, if I've wronged someone, I can't control how they're going to receive forgiveness, but I can control this part of the relationship and how God is forming me to be a forgiving person and to not do it again. And if it's the other way, uh, if somebody needs to forgive me, I can be prepared to receive that even if they're not, never going to give it, but I need to be right this way so that I'm ready for this, whatever happens here, so that I, I can act appropriately as God has created me to be and have that mercy and grace at my disposal because I know it's already come this way, so that it will always go this way, whether I'm giving or receiving. That's what needs to happen. And, and just so we're also clear, because I'm not saying a lot about forgiveness, um, when you do forgive, and when forgiveness is there, you can still set up boundaries. It doesn't mean that boundaries aren't set up. You might still say, hey, this happened, I forgive you, but let's put up a couple guardrails so this doesn't happen again. Right? That's part of forgiveness, just so we're clear. But when you pray this line, I think there are two key questions that we're, that we're actually asking about this relational piece, about forgiveness particularly. And one is where we just started. Where do I stand with God? Where do I stand with God when I say, forgive us our sins, debts, trespasses? Is there actually a relational distance between me and God that requires forgiveness right now? And we have to be absolutely and abundantly serious about this. This isn't something that we just ask and move on. This is the key question. Is there relational distance between me and God? Do I believe that my sin is real and is real and offensive to God enough that it causes a rift between my creator and me? It's a very important question because if we don't get this, we don't get the next part. Which is, where do I stand with others? That's the second half of the passage. Where do I stand with others? Forgive us our debts. How? As we forgive our debtors. As we forgive those who have sinned against us, those who stepped over that line. And we can ask, who do I hold a grudge against? Or who have I hurt? Or it can go the other way. Who holds a grudge against me and who's hurt me? But especially if, if we know that we have forgiveness that needs to be dispensed, who do I hold a grudge against? Is that grudge greater than the grace and God's grace and mercy towards me? Just so I can answer that question. No, it's not. It's not. 
And that doesn't try and minimize when we've had hurt from others. That doesn't try and minimize when there is a real grievance between us. I'm just saying that if we understand the first part of the equation, forgive us our debts or our sins, God fix this part of the relationship through Jesus Christ, there is nothing that we can experience in this world that is more profoundly effective in and breaking in our relationship than this relationship that we've already experienced. What God has done through Jesus Christ and the fixed plan that he's given us through Jesus Christ far exceeds any relational brokenness we can experience on the earth, profound as that might be. And I know some of us have profound brokenness we deal with in relationships. It still doesn't exceed the relational brokenness we've had with God through sin. Nothing will. But also the bright side of that is that the resurrection shows us that with God anything is possible. If God can raise the dead, he can fix those broken relationships. Not only if God can raise the dead, but if God can reconcile a world as broken as this one with himself, God can fix our human relationships. It's entirely possible and plausible. And we have to believe that that's the business God is in when we pray that line. So we want to be careful, and we don't want to run the risk of being a foul of God's grace because we can't dispense that grace to our neighbor. We have to have this in perfect perspective when we pray this line. And I also want to point out one other thing about it. So where do I stand with God? What's my standing with others? The forgiveness is the key. Again, I'm not minimizing the hurt and pain that we could have because of human relationships. It can run very deep. I know I have some relational hurts that run incredibly deep. And I wonder if they're ever going to be fixed. I don't know. But I know that God can. I have to start there. I know that if God's done this, God can do this in some of those deep hurts. But the other thing is that this is a collective prayer. Remember the words in it, and forgive who? Us. Our debts. Not me, not you. Forgive us. This is a prayer for the people of God. And it's very important that uh, that collective prayer that we recognize that if there's sin in the camp, we have a problem, not just I have a problem or you have a problem. If there's sin running amok among God's people and, and unwillingness to forgive among God's people, we have a problem. It affects us all. Even if I or you are the most forgiving people, but we have, uh, we have for, uh, forgiveness that needs to be made within the people of God, it's going to hurt us all. And if we're real frank about it, because I grew up here, and because I've been pastor here for five and a half years, I know there's a lot of hurt that still lingers within this place. We've dispensed it and we've received it far too often. And we always need to acknowledge is there sin in the camp? Is there something that needs to be forgiven? And if there is, today's the day, right? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Don't let pride or pain block you from God's grace and mercy because when it does, it blocks us from being the visible representation of the kingdom of God to the city of Lincoln, Nebraska. That's a problem. And it's fixable. If we can't forgive us, 
within us, then we simply end up being flashlights without batteries in a dark world. Great potential doing absolutely nothing. But God's designed us for more, hasn't he? I think that the, uh, as I thought about this living as forgiven people, I just reflected on the Apostle Paul this week, who I think embodies the way before and the way after so well of forgiveness. A man who was killing and persecuting believers and then became one because the risen Jesus Christ through his resurrection power changed Paul. He changed Paul. God did a work in him. And because he dealt with the weight of sin that weighed him down, he never forgot that weight of sin, but he lived into the freedom of forgiveness. And I think it shows us the option that's always before us when we pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. What would we rather have? We're asking in that instance. What would I rather have? Anger or freedom? What would I rather have? Anxiety or reconciliation? What would I rather have? Awkward relationships or forgiving friendships? That's what we're praying when we pray that. Let's pray together right now. Lord, help us be willing to forgive in all instances. Help us to be people who embody mercy and grace that you've given us to be people who can live out as those who are your holy ones and those who recognize your love and that holiness dispensed to us. Lord, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. God, in all things, let us be reconciled to you and to your people so that we can be the visible representation of the kingdom of God in a dark, broken, and unforgiving world. Amen.